Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. And we're back on the College Football Survivor Show. It's Doug and Shahan, and we're talking coaches this week. No basketball at the moment. Enjoy the basketball. But Shahan, this is the time of year, I think, when there's a lot of discussion about who the best head coaches are. People do coaching rankings. You're on the lookout for breakthrough coaches and first-year coaches. One of what Sonny Dykes did last year at TCU in year one. You're on the on the lookout for that. But as we were kind of thinking about this, I, I, I was curious about coaching primes, not coach prime, coaching primes. Although, frankly, coach prime is a discussion in here. But but where guys are in the cycle of their careers and how much that matters to their chances of their teams doing extraordinary things. So we have a little bit of a historic snapshot that I wrote down, and I want to make some comparisons here. But I want to ask first, and there's so many aspects of coaching in college football. Recruiting is such a huge part of it. And I do think there's sort of a thought process of you've got to let a head coach sort of cycle through three or four recruiting classes, maybe to the point where he gets a full roster of guys that he's brought in. Not that you can't win with guys that you inherit. But I think there's something to that. But there's also the coaching part of it. So I think there's there's recruiting, there's culture building and the establishment of like what your program's gonna be. And then there's the game day X and O motivational bringing out the best of what you have, however you built it. How big a deal is that? Like how important, how big of a difference do you think coaches make in college football? And I guess you have to have a baseline of talent and that's the recruiting part of coaching. But I'm a little more interested in the other part of it, the X's and O's, the culture, the motivation that brings out the best of whoever you have in the building. How important is that? No, I think it's very important. Uh there are certainly different things that every type of program needs. You know, one of the things that I loved about uh, my old job at Dave Campbell Sex Football was getting to be intimately involved with different types of programs, right? And so what the University of Texas needs versus what Texas A&M needs versus what TCU needed versus what UTSA needed are very different things, right? And so I think that the great coaches are ones that understand what their program needs. Because, for example, you know, let's look at Nick Saban. Nick Saban, I think, is still the standard bearer, not just in college football right now, but in coaching in general. And he succeeded at a bunch of different places. He succeeded at LSU, where, you know, LSU was not a place that went and competed for national championships. He found out a strategy that worked there. He, w- he was a very good coach at Michigan State. You know, again, a very different program than one in the Southeast. Then he went to Alabama, a place where I would argue you are a politician first and foremost and secondarily a football coach and managed to create a system that created uh, the most dominant run in the history of college football. So, no, I I think it matters a lot. You know, look, I I think that most coaches don't have the skill set and abilities and political skills to be able to do all of those things. But I think that the ones that do absolutely make a difference because, you know, the reality is, I, you know, we're, we're not talking college basketball today, but I think that there's a big difference between those two things, right? With college basketball, you are talking about putting together a relatively small roster that you can flip in a relatively short amount of time. You're talking about truly individualized relationships with players. You can deeply know all 13 players on your roster 
Like that is possible as an individual. It's impossible for the head coach to actually know all 85 players intimately. Obviously they recruited them. Obviously they have relationships with them, but like, I mean, I'm sorry, man. Like Nick Saban does not have a close intimate relationship with the backup long snapper. He just doesn't. That's just not how this works. And so I think that, uh, you know, we use that phrase CEO a lot, but I think that that's actually pretty apt here because I think that you as a coach uh, in football, it is more about your institutional abilities. It's more about your program building abilities. It's more about your retention abilities. It's more about uh, being able to hire. You know, you always refer to coordinators as middle managers. I think that in an organization with this many people, having good middle managers that you hire and have a good relationship with, I think is really, really important. And so, uh, so I, I think that in football, sort of your large scale organizational abilities, uh, can really make or break the culture of an organization. And when you're dealing with an organization of 150, 200 people, that's very important. So the reason that we want to talk about this on a playoff show is I think there are, a couple coaches out there at major programs who are getting ready to enter their primes as college football head coaches, but I believe maybe have not yet been there. And I think there's a couple different ways you can do that, but I want to zero in on something that was a very big deal when I started covering college football. And it was the idea of at these top shelf programs, head coaches coming in and winning national titles right away. A lot of it on the backs of the recruiting of the guy who got fired ahead of them. And there were sort of multiple situations where maybe the previous guy was good at bringing in talent, but couldn't do the other things to maximize all of that talent. So in since 2000, in looking at all the head coaches who who won a title for the first time at their school. Okay, so there's 15 coaches. Saban messes up a lot of stuff. It's like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> can, can a coach win in his 60s? It's like, I don't know, Nick Saban can. It's like, okay, well, I mean, other than Nick Saban. Yeah, I, I feel like for this conversation, you just have to put Nick Saban aside. Again, there there is no coach that I can think of who won at Toledo, Michigan State, LSU, and Alabama in, a, in just completely different ways. Like, it's just... Saban's the greatest of all time. I feel like you almost just can't talk about him. He is both the definition of an exception to every rule you have yeah, about yeah. college football, which is like that Homer Simpson thing, right? Like uh, alcohol is the cause of and solution to every problem <laughs> or whatever, right? That's what Nick Saban is. So he's the he's the uh, he's the after dinner cocktail of college football. So let's talk about that. So, but even Saban will lump in here. So of the fifteen guys when they won their title for the first time at their school, 10 of those 15 times happened in the first three seasons at that school. Hmm. And I do think there was really a stretch of it. So we'll run through it here briefly. But it's not happening quite as much anymore. And I'm looking to see if, you know, there's only one national title every year. Saban messes everything up. Okay, Kirby Smart didn't win right away. So is it just, it tells us nothing or is there something here that we can key in on a little bit? So just very quickly, starting in 2000, Oklahoma, that's Bob Stoops in year two. Miami in 01, that's Larry Coker in year one, taking over for, for Butch Davis, who had taken over for 
Dennis Erickson, who had taken over for Jimmy Johnson. That one feels like cheating. That one feels like It's still the fumes. It's still Jimmy Johnson, Howard Schnellenberger fumes two decades later. Yeah. God bless Larry Coker, UTSA legend. Um, That was probably not his football program. And I will say there's a lot, like every young coach or every every new coach who takes over, is sort of handed a successful program. I think fans are on alert for Larry Coker. Right. Like, okay, did you do something – but it was really fumes, and you didn't have the thing on your own to sustain it. So Stoops year two, Coker year one, Jim Trestle at Ohio State in year two. Hmm. Next year when USC and LSU split it, Pete Carroll and USC in year three. 2006, Florida, Urban Meyer, year two. 2007, LSU, Les Miles, year three. 2009, Nick Saban, the first title at Bama in year three. 2010, Auburn, Gene Chiswick, year two. 2014, now Urban Meyer again. Now this time it's at Ohio State, year three. And then Coach O took over as an interim, but it's his third full year at LSU when they win it in 2019. So there are a lot of examples there of like, bang, you flip it. But I don't know if it tells us something. There is a particular person that it might tell us something about? It's Lincoln-Riley. Is this a Lincoln-Riley possible situation here? Because when you look at a lot of it, Bob Stoops is a talent base from John Blake at Oklahoma that Bob Stoops takes advantage of and bang. Larry Coker just inherits a great program. It's not that anybody got fired. Butch Davis goes to the NFL. Jim Trestle, some good John Cooper talent, even though it fell off at the end at Ohio State, but but that helps Trestle win right away. Um Florida or Meyer, Ron Zook. That's a lot of talent buildup at Florida. I think LSU, Les Miles. There's like a, a kind of a similar thing there. There's a couple that, and then Coach O and Gene Chizik at LSU and Auburn, those titles. That's to me just no offense, but the talent in those individual years was so offen- so immense, kind of anybody could have. Yeah. I almost think anybody could have won with with Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, and Justin Jefferson. I think almost anybody could have won with Cam Newton. That is a Cam Newton title. That is a Burrow Chase Jefferson title. They didn't get coached to the title. And it just kind of happened that those guys wound up there. Good job by Coach O getting Joe Burrow to come in. He did recruit well. LSU recruited well. Cam Newton had to go somewhere. So I don't know. I don't I'm not gonna take a lot away from am I, am I being mean? Am I being uh, mean? Again, I think that you are being the appropriate amount of mean. I, uh, I think that uh, I think that everybody who's around either of those two programs, LSU or Auburn, would probably very overtly say it to you in much meaner words than what you're using, mm. what they think of those oh. coaches. Uh, no, it is interesting, right? Because like you said, the the most recent one of these that we have is in 2019, where you have a second or third year coach. Now, one that I will mention, and they didn't win, is Kirby Smart was in the title game in year two. So, you know, th- there are examples of that. Something that I'm curious about is, one, I, th- I feel like we've reached a point of efficiency with recruiting to where you can't have teams that have that level of talent that don't succeed. Because, like, Alabama, I mentioned it, uh, I think, last week. When you look at their blue chip ratio, they're at 91%. That that's stupid. That is that is insane, right? Like we're talking about programs being at like, oh, they were at like sixty percent, and that was enough to compete. And you know, there are usually twelve to fifteen programs that are in the, the fifty to sixty percent range. 
but like maybe we're just reaching a level of consolidation where you can't just show up at a place and it just work. The, the closest example we would have of that is Ohio State, who had a championship coach and then somebody who came in and did some nice things. And Ryan Day was playing in a national title game in year two, I believe it was. So, like, you know, we have examples of that. But, like, I, I say a lot. There are three programs that I think can do things differently than everybody else right now. And I, I don't know if it's quite as possible for a coach to come in and take a team to title caliber because of how much infrastructure those other three programs have in place. So, and the 12 team playoffs going to play this, be, change this because you're going to get more teams with opportunities than any given Saturday in, in the playoffs. So, or that given Monday or whatever day they're going to, week they're going to play this stuff on. So, I want let's talk about Lincoln Riley first as we try to get specific about where some of these things apply to guys. And I do think one of the things that I think maybe does matter is I was trying to look at guys in their year at the school, but also in their year as a head coach overall. So Bob Stoops is a longtime assistant. That's his first head coaching job at Oklahoma when he does that in year two. Larry Coker is the offensive coordinator. He just kind of inherits that, right? And that is when you just inherit the thing, that is a little bit of a different situation. And then it's like long-term, can Larry Coker do it? No, Larry Coker can't do it. But like you look at Jim Tressel. He was head coach for 15 years before he got to Ohio State. You look at Pete Carroll, he'd been in the NFL, right? Multiple stops in the NFL. You look at um, Urban Meyer, had done it at Bowling Green and Utah. So he turns it, he wins it in Florida in year two, but he'd been a head coach before. Nick Saban obviously had experience before he did it at LSU and then did it at Alabama. Uh, Gene Chizik, limited a couple years at at Iowa State, not as much. Um, Coach O had been around the block a little bit, right? Old Miss, this time at USC, like Coach O had been around. So one of the things is, I do think that this might really apply to Lincoln Riley because I think it applied less to whatever Lincoln Riley was trying to do the first time around at Oklahoma. But I do think, and this is maybe why I want to have this conversation, I think there is something to figuring out how to be a head coach. So when you go somewhere new, you've got to figure out how this place works. You've got to figure out the president. You've got to figure out the AD. You've got to figure out the boosters. You've got to figure out the fans. You've got to figure out the local media. You've got to figure out all those things that maybe you're not exposed to. But if you've done it before, you're not trying to figure out how to do the job. I think Lincoln Riley at USC fits a lot of what these successful quick turn guys have done and now now clay helton did not like leave him the recruiting base that ron zook left urban meyer or john cooper left jim trestle right so that's a little bit different but you think about all the experiences that lincoln riley gained at oklahoma that jim trestle gained at youngstown state that urban meyer gained at bowling green and utah that pete carroll gained in the nfl this partial like they were close Last year. And there's a, I think I've already been on record saying like, man, Alex Grinch, I don't know. Like he kept him as a defensive coordinator. It makes me hesitant about USC this year. Now looking at it this way, there's a part of me that thinks everything Lincoln Riley has done in his life is leading up to this, which is I have a Heisman winning quarterback. 
I really know what's up. I know how to do it. And I know this place now. And I am ready to be the best version of myself when, frankly, maybe we thought we were getting that before. But this is a guy who took over as a head coach at age 33, I think it was, which is kind of significantly younger than most of this cohort. Everybody else, I was, I checked everybody. Almost everybody has taken over like when they're 38 or 39, they're getting their first head coaching job. He took over when he was 33 at Oklahoma. And Oklahoma, again, when you, we talked about the thing, the Mad Bowl, the matchups we want to see, and you were like, you know who would be mad at each other? And we were like, oh, my God, let's get USC and Oklahoma in the playoff tomorrow. <laughs> Oklahoma does not want to be viewed as a stepping stone. Oklahoma never previously had been viewed as a stepping stone. I think in this situation, doesn't mean Oklahoma is a stepping stone program. For Lincoln Riley, it was. I don't want to say that Oklahoma was his version of Bowling Green and Utah. I don't want to say his his version of what Les Miles did at Oklahoma State before he went and won at LSU, right? So I'm not going to say that. But I think we have not yet seen the best of what Lincoln Riley is when he totally knows what he wants to be as a head coach and when he totally has a feel for the place he is now. And I think we might get that right now. I think there's definitely an argument for it because, you know, one of the things that I think really helps him specifically being at USC, because let's just, let's just say I'm not, I'm not going to take a hard stance on this, but let's just say that USC is an easier place to acquire talent, that it's a place where obviously it's in Los Angeles. You have all this access to so- Southern California. You've got a national recruiting base. Everybody's talking about Lincoln Riley. You've got the advantage now, too, of being able to recruit players to go into the Big Ten as well. So let's just say hypothetically that it is easier to acquire talent at USC than it is at Oklahoma, which Oklahoma has lots of advantages too, but let's just say that. Well, I think that what Oklahoma has done historically as well that has really been its superpower is its institution. Like they have such good administration. They have such a good vision. Uh, you know, I mentioned uh, Ohio State and Oklahoma to me are the two best programs when it comes to just football institution, football administration, football uh, infrastructure is the word I'm looking for. Well, now you're Lincoln Riley and you know what that looks like. And you're at a place where you can acquire talent even more easily, especially offensive talent, by the way. So I, I think there's definitely some merit to that. You know, he built a very robust football infrastructure that USC really hadn't had under Clay Helton or or uh, even Steve Sarkeesian before that or Ed Orgeron for that little bit, right? So I, I think that you have to go back to the days of Pete Carroll when they really had that level of infrastructure. So I think that that's going to help them out a lot. You know, the the thing that's going to be interesting and – this is a question with Lincoln Riley, and this is also a question about this era, is obviously the transfer portal is something that can flip things so quickly, but we don't really have an example of it actually building a championship-quality team either. You know, So that's going to be an interesting question when we're heading into these, these kind of situations because we saw Lincoln Riley flip as much of this roster basically as humanly possible in year one, and it flipped a program from 4-8 and eight to 11-3, and three, I think it was. So... It's it's definitely possible. I'm going to be curious to see if USC can take that next step. Uh, you know, I think Lincoln Riley said in an interview during this offseason that when you look at it, year one should hopefully be our worst team ever. 
right? That it should hopefully only get better from here. And they bring back a lot of production on both sides of the ball. I think that they should develop with just guys coming back on the defensive side of the ball. But it is going to be an interesting question. I think that if you wanted to keep an eye out for one coach who could potentially do this early in his tenure, I I agree. I think that Lincoln Riley is probably that perfect candidate. Okay, there are two more head coaches on potential playoff teams that I think are about to enter their primes that I want to talk about. There's another guy that fits a particular lens that I want to talk about. There's a couple other guys that I think we might be underestimating that are about maybe to be in the perfect spot to do something. And we're going to get to all of them next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right, Doug Maurice back with Shahanjay Haraja. The next guy that I want to talk about in this idea, and it's not maybe a perfect historical comparison, But I do think it is somebody who took a little bit of a more traditional path of you won at a smaller place, winning at that place, got you a bigger job. When you got to that bigger job, it was not in great shape. But now there is actual reason to believe as you form that program the way you want it to look, that we are about to see the best version that we have not yet seen. And if you're looking for a team to make a jump, I think you can add coaching into the reasons why it might happen. Do you want to guess who I'm talking about? I ooh, I don't know. Okay. It's Mike Norvell in Florida State. Okay. Okay. I, I was the thing that I thought that you might be saying is potentially Kalen DeBoer at Washington, but that's so that. he's on my list. Okay, he good, is good, on good, my good, list. Good, good. Yeah. Just make no, sure. No, I know what sure. I know you like the Kalen DeBoer conversation. I do. So Four years at Memphis, eight and five, ten and three, eight and six, twelve and one in twenty nineteen. Goes to Florida State, three and six, then five and seven. They go ten and three last year. And I think this is a very good example of a guy. This is maybe sort of like a a less miles, Oklahoma State to LSU kind of example, right? That this guy put in the work, didn't take forever. I mean, you know, you're a head coach for four years, you get the Florida State job. But if there was a time where it was like, oh, I don't know, Florida State's just a mess now. And it's like, no, they have a quarterback. They got they have good transfers. They have a great defensive player. They have a depth of talent. And by the way, they have a guy who has sort of been on this arc. He's only 41. He'll be 42 in October. And he's had to do this part of it where he's succeeded at a very high level at Memphis. And then he had to rebuild a blue blood. And now they're kind of here, and in year eight as a head coach, I think there are a lot of things lining up for Florida State right now. And it's it's really not a situation where they came out of the blue last year. Like, they were put – you didn't know if it was going to happen, but Mike Norvell in year one and two at Florida State is putting in the work that's required to do this kind of thing. So it wasn't an instantaneous flip like it was for some other guys. But I think we are maybe about to get prime Mike Norvell, which is going to mean the new prime version of Florida State with a whole lot of stuff lining up here for the Seminoles. And I already had them in my March playoff and trying to look at this through a coaching lens and a career progress lens only makes me think that more. No, I mean, I I think that this is a very, like you mentioned, traditional kind of build. Obviously, 
that first year, it's a pandemic. Uh, you know, they go three and six, two and six in conference. I, I just feel like you have to throw that out. You just have to throw that out. That's that's just a thing that happened. Obviously, uh, he had to deal with a situation that nobody would ever want to deal with, not even counting the state of the roster, obviously. Uh, 2022, they're really able to come around. They win 10 games for the first time since 2016. Uh, they bring almost everybody back in 2023. You know, I, I think that... Uh, you know, you look at his progress at Memphis and he took over a program at Memphis that was already in good shape with a at, coming off of the Justin Fuente era. They go eight and five. They go 10 and three. They win eight games. Then they finally have their breakout year in year four. Right. It's building and building and building. And finally, it's Mike Norvell's team and they get to play in the Cotton Bowl against Penn State. So, no, I, I think that there's absolutely some similarities here. I think that there's absolutely a, a clear pathway for, for the direction that this is going. And, you know, for me. One thing that I think has been fun uh, to make a comparison to another program that was that is now coached by a former really good AAC coach. You know, Mike Norvell's a good coach. We've seen that before. It's kind of like a, it reminds me a little of Josh Heupel, where Josh Heupel uh, did a good job at UCF. His offenses were good. You felt like, you know, Josh Heupel maybe had some very clear limitations, but it's interesting how when you go to a place that can really support you at a high level like Tennessee or Florida State, some of those limitations just go away when you have elite level talent and support. And I think that we started to see that a little bit too with Florida State. Obviously, again, they they come out and win 10 games this past year. I I think that heading into 2023, they're going to be able to fill some of the holes that they've done. And, And I mentioned off the top, right, that institution. I think that that's Memphis was a program by the time that Mike Norvell was there that had really good administration, really good institution, really good infrastructure from a football perspective. And I think that you've seen Florida State be patient and let Mike Norvell do that because, you know, we, we can't forget Mike Norvell took over a program that had fired a coach after like 18 months you know, in, in Willie Taggart. They really kind of threw that program to the wolves in a lot of ways. And that was after things tanked under Jimbo Fisher. So I, I think that they've let him come in and do his thing. And, and I agree. I think that we're potentially about to see Mike Norvell's best coaching job. So Lincoln Riley, ready to hit his version of his prime. Mike Norvell, ready to hit his version of his prime. Let's detour slightly and ask, is this guy, is this a, a setup for a year two huge? Because actually Josh Heupel is sort of like that year two guy. He's just sure, Hendon Hooker sure. got hurt, and so they didn't make the playoff and have a chance at the national title. But that season that Tennessee had, compared to what Tennessee had been, is almost like a national title season at Tennessee. And give me a healthy Hendon Hooker. Who knows what happened? Also, they gave up a billion points to South Carolina, even while Hendon Hooker was still in the game. Yeah. But yes. So, so that's like a year two leap, though, yeah. right? For like a, hey, this guy came in and it didn't take long. So let me ask another year two leap question. And is there a way that some of the things that have happened in the past could apply to this guy. And it's Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame. Now, again, the difference is some of these other coaches who turned it quick had been head coaches somewhere else before. Marcus Freeman has not. But Brian Kelly wasn't fired. It was not a desperate situation, right? So he did inherit some things that work. You look back at the way the Notre Dame season unfolded last year, which is great expectation and hype in the preseason. They open against one of the best teams in the country and his alma mater at Ohio State, they lose. They lose week two to Marshall with a quarterback injury and it gets a little bit goofy and it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. They have a weird loss to Stanford in the middle of the year. 
which I also think sometimes is just like, he's never done this before. <laughs> like he's trying to figure out, oh, like we weren't ready for this not very good team at home and we lost a game we shouldn't have lost. And then they don't lose again until they lose the season finale against USC. But you look back overall, they win their bowl game. It's nine and four, includes a win over Clemson, win over BYU. Like in totality, it's like, oh, no, this is pretty good. And you could almost, I think, feel him and see them figuring it out as they go. Now you throw a veteran quarterback into the mix. And are we potentially, with any other reason that you would like Notre Dame this year, including they get Ohio State at home, could Marcus Freeman fit this quick flip model? Or because he's still trying to figure out how to be a head coach, is he not going to do what Les Miles or Urban Meyer or Bob Stoops did? Well, I, th- I think off the Florida State question and, and off the Tennessee example, I do want to, I think, recontextualize what we feel as a successful year two flip, right? Because I just think that winning the national championship right now is so hard. Like, it's so hard. I, I don't think that you can make a comparison to 2000 Bob Stoops. I don't think you can make a comparison to 2006 Urban Meyer. So for me, that version of success is legitimately, legitimately competing for the playoff competing for a top five spot and making a new year six bowl. So that's, that's what it would be to me. We can, I guess, identify it as being eligible for the 12 team playoff maybe is what we would consider success. And when I look at this Notre Dame team, I, I think that, like you said, this is a perfect opportunity uh, to, to elevate because I think that that's really what you're looking at, right? I mean, obviously Brian Kelly kind of had a team that did make multiple playoffs, but I think that Marcus Freeman, the way that he's kind of built things up, has an opportunity to elevate. Last year in 2022, they have a top 10 class. 2023, they they have the number 11 class. Like, they have players coming in. 12 of them are early enrollees. And, and I've mentioned these kids before, but Braylon James and Jaden Greathouse are receivers who I think are going to be incredibly dynamic. They're already on campus. They're going through spring drills. Uh, that, I think, has been one of the bigger issues that Notre Dame has faced is just having dynamic playmakers outside. And these guys are that. Then you bring in Sam Hartman, who to me is the number one overall transfer of the entire offseason. He is a certified game changer, was an incredible player at Wake Forest, the ACC's all-time leading touchdown passer. I mean, this has a chance to pop. Uh, defensively, they were pretty good all year long. Offensively, they were trying to figure some things out because of injuries. Well, now I think you have so much more around the offense to be able to to really elevate it to a different level. You know, Audric Estime is back at running back as well. I think you really have to like the combination of returning production and guys that they're adding. And and I think that, yeah, by the end of the year, I mean, if, if you we talk about this, right, the idea of in a 12 team playoff, a team that gets hot like Utah has gotten the past couple of years, maybe you get to see them actually go into the playoff and win some games as opposed to being eliminated because of what they did in September. I think that you look at 2022 Notre Dame as the kind of team that obviously would not have made the playoff last year, but you look at the way that they finished, it was impressive. Beating Syracuse, who was ranked at the time, beating Clemson, who was ranked at the time. They get beat by USC, and USC would have been a playoff team if not for Caleb Williams getting hurt. They beat South Carolina in their bowl game. I, I think that it's they won six of their last seven games under Marcus Freeman with the only loss coming to the Heisman winner. 
I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to be excited about this team. Uh, they have a tough, tough, tough schedule to, to maneuver, but a lot of it comes in the latter half of the year. And so I think that there's absolutely a pathway to Notre Dame having success early. I'm going to have that game against Ohio State on September 23rd circled. Obviously, that's going to be a fun game just from the perspective of Marcus Freeman coaching against Ohio State. But, you know, you're also talking about an Ohio State team that is replacing their quarterback and having to replace some really key pieces. And and I'll tell you what, if you're able to come in and beat an Ohio State team that also wouldn't have prepared against anybody of your caliber up until that point, I mean, that changes everything about the Marcus Freeman era. I do think Stoops is a pretty good comparison here. Bob yeah. Stoops at Oklahoma is hired at age 40. Marcus Freeman's hired at age 36. They're defensive-minded sure. guys. Defensive-minded. They're defensive coordinators yes. who are really good, really good, really hot assistants who immediately jump to a giant job. And it happened right away for Bob Stoops. So I do think, you know, again, I think that's the harder way to try to do a year two flip as a guy who's never been head coach before. But I do think it's not impossible. But I would be, again, I think you're making a very good point here. I looked at national championship coaches like, come on. And as we've been saying here, it's a playoff show. We can't define success as only winning a national championship. But I would be on alert for Notre Dame is, oh, like they're ready for this. And they're maybe even ready to elevate beyond what they had been as a very highly successful program with Brian Kelly. And it starts now. It didn't start last year. Right. That's one of those things, too. It's like you can be like, hey, it's like people like Marcus Freeman. What a great hire. I, we're saying on this show. Oh, my gosh. And then they're 0-2. And, and it's like, well, there goes that. It's like, no, <laughs> it's not over because they started 0-2. Yeah. yeah. So like, keep that energy for the second year of Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame. I, I, and the comparison that I would personally make is I think that this is actually more of the Lincoln Riley because you – Get Marcus Freeman. He joins a Notre Dame program that has competed at the top, but hasn't really been a legitimate contender at the top. Right. I mean, and, and actually there's some comparison because Bob Stoops wins in his second season and has some early success and then goes seven or so years without actually having a national caliber team. I, I think that you can make that comparison with obviously Notre Dame under Brian Kelly having that second year squad uh, with Manti Teo in 2012 that maybe was national championship caliber and then not really having that kind of team ever again. And then you bring in Marcus Freeman, you see some nice stuff happen and then that guy takes over and you, you feel it elevate. I mean, Bob Stoops was not leading playoff caliber teams before Lincoln Riley got there. I guess it was only one year of playoff, but you know what I mean? They hadn't been in the national discussion since 2008, you probably would say. So uh, I, I think that this definitely has a chance to pop. I think this definitely has a chance uh, to to be a playoff caliber situation. And look, I mean, Sam Hartman, again, I said it a few weeks ago, he's the best quarterback to play at Notre Dame since probably at least Brady Quinn. And in like maybe more than that, like this is a special quarterback. Ian Book was a really good player for them. Jack Cohn played very well. This this is different. This this is a completely different kind of situation if this thing works. And with the the playmakers they're bringing in on the outside, with the experience they're bringing back, uh, I love their offensive line coaching. And I think that you saw by the end of the year they were in a much better place than they were when they played uh, Ohio State early in the year. I, I mean, it's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm excited to see what happens. All right, so let's go to that game, and let's go to a guy who I think is about 
to enter his prime. And that's okay. Ryan Day at Ohio State. And I think you can see Ryan Day changing and learning from what has gone right and has gone wrong at Ohio State in his first four years as a head coach. And I do think in the end, I think Ryan Day, as it turns out, is a little bit on a Kirby Smart, Dabo Sweeney kind of path. So Ryan Day in year two coaches in a national title game, just like Kirby Smart in year two coaches in a national title game. But I think the Kirby Smart that then got over the top at Georgia is a significantly better coach than the Kirby Smart that flipped it quick in year two at Georgia. Dabo Sweeney won his first national title at Clemson in year eight after being good, like good and building and good. But it took that long to peak, right? And it, you know, Deshaun Watson helps you peak. So like that's, you got to have the players. But I think being built up in a program, Dabo Sweeney was assistant, an assistant who took over. Kirby Smart wasn't an assistant at Georgia, but he's a former player at Georgia. He knows that program, but it's not an instantaneous all the way flip. I think I see Ryan Day making real adjustments that he would not have made in year one or year two, which is being willing to giving up to give up play calling. They've hired a guy. It's a guy who's been on staff. His name's Quinn Temple, but they've given him a title of chief of staff, which I think, you know, you watch the West Wing, you know what the chief of staff is. It's like they're trying. I think Ohio State is very actively trying to sort of get rid of the noise, clear the plate for Ryan Day so he can focus on certain things. And then to me, it's like, what does he need to focus on? He needs to focus on Michigan. So whatever can happen at Ohio State so that the head coach of the program, who had never even been the head coach of a middle school team before, had never been a head coach in his life, and made, has made the playoff three of his first four years at Ohio State, but is also coming off consecutive losses to Michigan. What do you do? You adjust the focus. You decide where are the head coach's energies best aimed. And what can you do where, hey, this other person can do this thing as well or almost as well as I can? Or even if they're not quite as good at it, it's not the number one thing that we need. I think you, and I think Ryan Day, it took close calls and success. It took heartbreaking losses and rivalry issues to get to this point. I feel like I see the evolution of a head coach. I think Lincoln Riley, in his own way, went through that same evolution. He moved to complete his evolution. But I think Ryan Day is significantly changing. And I think the end effect might be that Ohio State's chances of anything, but particularly of beating Michigan, are going to be increased because of the lessons that a first-year head coach, when he's, you know, first-time head coach, who took over before he was 40, just like almost all these guys, 38, 39 is like the average age of when these guys take over for the first time. But they don't all take, you know, Nick Saban did that at Toledo. Nick Saban was at Toledo. He was 38 years old when he became a head coach. Ryan Day was 39 at the news conference when he took over for Ryan Day. But when was at Toledo? When was at Ohio State? So Nick Saban on his way up, every lesson that Nick Saban learned at Toledo and Michigan State, and then LSU, where he wins the national title. Before he gets to Alabama, Ryan Day is like, hey, you seem like you know how to call an offensive play. It's like, well, that's not 
So I think I see it, Shahan. And I know for 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 Ohio State fans, there are times when like the Larry Coker, Mark Helfrich thing comes up. So Mark Helfrich didn't win a national title at Oregon, but he got to one, got to the first playoff national title game on the fumes of Chip Kelly. And then it's like, nope, doesn't have it. Larry Coker wins a national title on the fumes. Nope, doesn't have it long term. And if you are a doubter of Ryan Day, you go there. And like, I don't think that's what it is. But results will tell the story of that, right? Whether that's a reasonable comparison or not. But I think if I saw only the same thing again and again and again, it's like, okay, well, I don't know. You haven't beat Michigan. Michigan's good. Michigan's really good. But you got to figure out a way to beat Michigan. I feel like I see an evolution that is, oh, maybe this guy's about to be an even better head coach than he's been. I am very curious about this one because. And you are obviously more, much more in the weeds with Ryan Day than I am. But, you know, and I'll tell you what, I have too many friends who went to Oklahoma. And one thing mm. that they tell me is, you know, and some of it is, is just coping. But one thing that they did, that they do tell me that I think actually has some merit is when you look at Lincoln Riley, his best teams were the ones immediately taking over with Bob Stoops players. And then it kind of steadily got worse. And there's some truth to that. Now, obviously, I think that Lincoln Riley did a lot of really good things that Bob Stoops couldn't have done uh, during his tenure there. And like, obviously, I mean, they won 11 games basically every year. But there is a small part of that with Ryan Day, too, where year one and year two, you're talking about guys who had come through, been recruited by one of the greatest coaches of all time in Urban Meyer, developed by one of the greatest coaches of all time in Urban Meyer. and. 2021 was kind of his first year where it was all him. It was his third year. It was all his players. 2022 is that second year. And those definitely have been the two quote unquote worst years of his tenure. Now I think that 2022 was a lot better than 2021 is one credit that you give to him. So he, I think that he has shown an improvement per se, but that is one reason that I'm going to be keeping a very close eye on Ryan Day heading into 2023 because he's going to replace a quarterback. You assume that that's going to be okay because obviously he replaced Justin Fields with CJ Stroud and, you know, CJ Stroud is going to be at worst the number two pick in the NFL draft. Uh, but, you know, now you bring in another guy. And I think that even with uh, Lincoln Riley, you saw some issues with that where Jalen Hurts comes in and he's good, but he's not those first two guys. Not not even close. Right. So it's it's a different kind of animal when you had to do that. And and I think that it's going to be interesting because I, I do think that this is the year that kind of proves whether or not they can get. Well, I don't I don't want to I don't want to make too wide ranging a statement because he's at Ohio State and he's still doing all the little things right. But I don't know. It, obviously, it's something that I'm sure you hear with uh, with Ryan Day from Ohio State fans. But, you know, is there any level of concern? that his best two years were the two years where he had the most Urban Meyer roster that he had? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's hard because like best two years and it's like, well, I mean, it's really just losing to Michigan. It's right. He didn't lose to Michigan those years because they beat him the one year and then the next year they didn't play him and Michigan's really good now. And so I, I do think in, in the end, the thing to me is, when you have a situation like that and a game that matters so much that you've lost two years in a row, if you, do, if, if you didn't see a reaction, 
I would raise my eyebrow. Yeah. Because yeah. if you if you said to yourself, you know what, we're doing all the right things, we'll just keep we'll keep doing what we're doing. And I just think there's enough things that have happened where they didn't say that. Yeah. And so I think that's reason for optimism, whether it's giving up play calling, whether it's this like sort of the logistical day to day. They hire a guy like James Laurinaitis, who's a three time All American at Ohio State to come in and be in the building. And, you know, I was saying like, hey, hire Jim Tressel as the rivalry coach, you know, whatever you got to do. And it's like, well, they didn't do that. But like James Laurinaitis is like the pretty living close. embodiment of Jim Tressel. Yeah. yeah. Close. So I, I, I like the reaction to it. But I do think so. You don't, right. We don't know. But I think it's possible that a guy who has never been a head coach before and now four years in, and he, you know, he's saying things that like in the past, he would have said that 180 degrees opposite of that, you know, just the view of being an over the whole head coach of a program. And right. As opposed to, I think sometimes a lot of younger coaches, you can get stuck on the side of the ball where you have your expertise. And I think you just see an evolution there that I think is encouraging. And it makes me think there is certainly a real chance that, the best is yet to come. And like Kirby Smart is the example to that of me. I think Dabo is a really good example of it. But I just think, and we can do two minutes on Kirby here. I just think we are entering the era of Kirby Smart dominates college football for the next decade. Took over as a head coach when he's 38, has learned all the lessons. Again, jumps right into a gigantic job. Learned at the feet of, of Nick Saban and took over a program in Georgia that had been underachieving for a long time. And I just think he's checking every single box right now. And yeah, it's like, Oh, just go be Kirby smart. It's like, Oh, great. But again, think of what we thought about Kirby smart a couple of years ago. And it's one of these things Were we wrong about Kirby smart. Speak for yourself. I still remember one of our first episodes where we, where we ranked the, the eight coaches in our group. And and you ranked him last, and I ranked him like one fourth. Voice, I one voice, never one mind. I knew the whole time. I knew one heartbeat. <laughs> we are one. So some people might some people might have underestimated him. So the question is for those people who may have done that. Yeah, m- many people were underestimating many people. I wonder who those people were. Fifty <laughs> percent of podcast hosts on this podcast yeah. were underestimating him. Were those people <laughs> wrong or did he get better, right? Did he – because that's the thing too. Sometimes in this business and anything, but like in sports talk especially, you say something and then someone does the opposite of what you said. And it's like you were wrong. And it's like, well, was, was the were you wrong in the moment or right. were you kind of right and then a person got better? Yeah. Because I think even like the things that you – like Kirby Smart there – you know, the, the the Georgia players are at the national title game and they're doing yoga, like, to warm up and practice. And, like, Kirby Smart has a whole thing about, you know, clearing people's minds and making sure their bodies are right and, like, the connection of all the things. It's like this – I don't know. Maybe they were doing yoga in year one at Georgia. I don't know. But that sounds like the thing that a coach who's been around and has a holistic approach to how to bring out the best of his entire program does. And I think there are so many lessons that can be learned from how Kirby Smart's coach in Georgia right now. Yeah, so so I think a stark difference between these two coaches is that uh, is that Kirby Smart, I think, much more came in and took something down and rebuilt something as opposed to Ryan Day kind of elevating something that was there. But the flip side that I will mention, because 
you know, the funny thing about it, Kirby Smart was in a national title game in year two, arguably should have won it. Took, uh, it, it took Tua coming in and having this crazy game and, and winning in overtime for that to happen. Otherwise, Kirby Smart might be that second year head coach that we're talking about who has a national championship. And, you know, something that I said is if we flipped some of Kirby's seasons and it was like year one, they struggle year two, they have what they did in year three and year three, they're playing in the national title game. I feel like people view it differently. You know, that's probably a little true of how I view Ryan Day, right? Like we're, we're like, he still did the thing. I mean, we have to remember in year two, Ryan Day came back and coached the pants off of Dabo Swinney, like totally, totally dominated him. And because of what he did and, and obviously then you've, runs into a really good Alabama team. And that's just a thing that happens. So, no, I mean, I, I think that Kirby Smart, uh, you know, there, there's another comparison that I'd make, which is he got his Todd Munkin, right? Like he brings this guy in to not change what they're doing, but to elevate what they're doing. And there's a good comparison between that and with Jim Knowles and bringing him in. And I think he's one of the best defense coordinators in the entire country. And I think that we saw some early results like we did with Todd Monk. And I think his first year, right, was 2020. And we saw some nice things happen in 2020. But in 2021 was the year where Todd Monk was like, no, I'm that guy. And year two or year three was really the guy when he was like, no, I'm the best to do it right now. I am that dude. And maybe there'll be some comparisons with year two and year three, Jim Knowles, where he comes in and is in like really, really elevates this program. And maybe, I mean, again, I, I made the, the argument last year that Georgia was an offensive team that just happened to have a really good defense because of what, uh, what they were able to do on the offensive side of the ball. If Ohio State is also able to get to that point, I think that you feel good about that. But no, I, I think that I think that your points are well taken. I think that Kirby Smart was a good coach from the beginning, but definitely improved and changed and evolved to the point where now I think in 2022 and in 2023, like you said, he goes from being a very good coach, a top five coach in my mind, and you know maybe a top eight coach in Doug's mind, to being you know. <laughs> consensus number two he is consensus number two some people will try to make the argument for Matt one which i think is insane but you know consensus top two coach in college football right now and that is you know i i, I certainly would not have had him there even a couple years ago so kirby smart ready to do his thing for the next two decades my main three guys mike norvell ryan day lincoln riley i think in their own ways maybe about to enter their primes and be better head coaches than they've ever been before there are two more direct comparisons that guys i think are on similar paths and we can ask where they are alike and where they are different we'll do that next on the college football survivor show the college football survivor show where playoff survival is always on the line all right shahan let's go to the pac-12 where I think there is a direct comparison that are similar, but also very different. And we'll go to Washington and Kalen DeBoer and Oregon and Dan Lanning. These are two head coaches who are about to enter year two, who both had very successful initial years. Oregon goes 10 and three, finishes number 15 in the final AP poll. And uh, Washington goes 11 and two and finishes, I think, number eight in the final AP poll. Washington wins the game head-to-head at Oregon. So we're getting ready for uh, year two for both of them. Both had veteran quarterbacks back, which is nice. Bo Nix at Oregon, Michael Penix Jr. at Washington. Kalen DeBoer is 48. Dan Lanning is 36. 
Kalen DeBoer was an NAIA coach when he was 30, head coach for five years, but then recently was the head coach at Fresno State for two years before he got the Washington job. Dan Lanning had never been a head coach before he got to Oregon. So now we're thinking about, we just had a year two flip discussion with Marcus Freeman. Both these guys kind of had year one flips. Like they both were really good right away. But I think maybe, certainly, you have to talk about both these teams in the playoff picture. You have to talk about, is there even more out there for both of these teams? But I think my inclination is that Kalen DeBoer, who's been a head coach before, who's been around the block, who's a decade older than Dan Lanning, if we're trying to see who's more likely to peak in year two, I think there's some evidence to say if you want to look at both these schools and say both could do it, you might lean Washington as your more likely playoff peak Pac-12 candidate this season, Sean. Yeah, there's there's a lot of reasons to be excited about Kalen DeBoer. You know, one of the funny things is you talk about Kalen DeBoer takes over at Sioux Falls in 2005 as a 30-year-old. They go 11-2. and two. Like, he took over a good program, is the point. Year two, they go 14-0 and begin a streak of three national championships in four years. And the one year that they didn't, they finished runner-up in the national title game. He went 67-3. and three. As a head coach at Sioux Falls, I don't care if you're, I don't care if you're doing that for like your son's Pop Warner team. Going 67 and three is insane, insane stuff. Uh, obviously after that kind of builds his way up, uh, goes through Southern Illinois up to Eastern Michigan, uh, I believe under Chris Creighton, who's done a great job over there, uh, stops at Fresno State, stops at Indiana, eventually gets the, the Fresno State head coaching job and similar deal. Year one goes three and three. Year two is nine and three. Like a really, really good year with Jake Hayner at quarterback. So we have evidence that Kalen DeBoer gets even better in year two than he's in year one everywhere that he's been. And so, no, I, I think that there's a lot of reasons to be excited. I think that I picked Washington as my fourth playoff team uh, in our first playoff picks. And I don't know exactly how confident I feel about that. But, I mean, I think that this Washington team, you know, you make this comparison. Obviously, the pathway is very different. But I do think that you have to look at this in the mold of the, you know, the the Bob Stoops and the Urban Myers and all of this, because you had Jimmy Lake, who kind of tanked the program, but maybe not as much as people feel like they did, especially from a roster perspective. And you're really kind of working off the fumes of of Chris Peterson, who's one of the great coaches of all time, who built strong, great rosters. And then you have a coach coming in who really knows what to do with it. And and we saw that in year one. I, I feel like Washington might be the single most underrated program from that 2022 season. Like they were a dumb game away from maybe being in the college football playoff and they don't get talked about. But I, I love what Kalen DeBoer is doing over there. Obviously, they bring back Michael Penix at quarterback, who has a chance to compete for the Heisman. They've got an awesome wide receiver room. Their offensive coordinator, Ryan Grubb, I think will be a head coach after next season, after the 2023 season. And defensively, they're, I, I think that they're only going to continue to get better. So I love this Washington team. And, and when you make the comparison to Oregon, right? Oregon had a quote-unquote more talented roster after multiple years of recruiting under Mario Cristobal. But I do think that you saw those moments of youth and inexperience in coaching in Oregon's first season. I think that you saw moments where, uh, you know, you go back and think about that uh, Washington State game where they managed to escape it, but they're down 
by double figures late in that game against Washington State. And, you know, you kind of just feel like maybe we're not seeing the best version of Oregon quite as yet. And and Dan Landing, like you mentioned, I mean, he's 36. This is only his second year as a coach. I think that we're going to see an improvement in year two. But I, I just think that you have to look at the experience that Kalen DeBoer has and the roster that he's going to bring in at Washington. And, and I, I just think that this is going to be a great matchup. And, and obviously, these are two of the continuing Pac-12 teams, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I, I view... Kalen DeBoer is kind of the guy who is best positioned to make that year two jump once again. Marcus Freeman, Dan Lanning. A lot of comparisons there. Yes. Right. Young defensive coordinator who had never been a head coach before. If we're, you know, you can't say, oh, I think Marcus Freeman and Sam Hartman are going to do it and say, well, Dan Lanning and Bo Nix have no chance. I think they're on similar paths, but it's like, which path would you take? It's just fascinating. The way the Pac 12 reset a year ago. That we are now entering year two of Dan Landing at Oregon, year two of Kalen DeBoer at Washington, year two of Lincoln Riley at USC. This is like, this could be a thing, but if you're going to line up, who has the chance for like a year two peak? I think you've got to, I think your order has to be Lincoln Riley one, Kalen DeBoer two, Dan Landing three. And that doesn't mean it's impossible for anybody, but it's an exciting time in the Pac 12 before it breaks apart and splinters and isn't on TV. But for right now, oh, what a great year 2023 might I'll be. I'll be able to get it. Uh, you know, I'll be able to flip right over from Ted Lasso to watching the Washington game. And I'll be able to, uh, you know, I think I probably get Eye on TV or whatever it was that Brett McMurphy <laughs> reported, they, which I, I don't know. That seems to be fake. But. Yeah, you know, we'll be able to watch it. I, I bet that I can get it like on like uh, my fridge or something like that, or yeah. on you know, th- there's got to be some ways. <laughs> do you do you watch Ted Lasso? Yes, I do. Yeah. So, do you like Ted Lasso? I do. I love it. So, yeah, no. do do you watch it? I did not watch it, but then I just started watching it to get caught up before season yeah. three started, and I don't like it. Yeah, and. The only character that I like is the nice guy who then got full of himself, wanted credit, turned into a jerk and left. And I was like, I relate to that guy. (laughs) So I think that one thing about Ted Lasso is that season one was released at just like the perfect moment because it was deep pandemic whenever that first came out. And so like – the the first season is like relentlessly positive. And so I feel like it was I, I feel like that was so needed in that moment. And then season two came out and season two is like all about dealing with like mental health and uh and, and like the trauma and stuff like that. And that was like right after the pandemic kind of winded down. And so like I feel like each of those things were such like like, yes, I think they're great on their own, but you really needed to experience them when they came out. They were perfect for the moments that they came out to. So I I think that, you know, and I still think it's great. I, I rewatched season one uh, back before to, to get ready for season three. And I don't really know where they're going in season three, frankly. Uh, they've only released two episodes, but, uh, but I, I still love it. I would like, maybe people have already done this. I just passed on the whole Ted Lasso thing. I would like to do a podcast reacting to the results of <laughs> Richmond and just ripping Ted Lasso for being a yes. horrible coach. That oh. I would actually enjoy. Well, yeah. well, uh, look, I mean, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen season one, he was hired to lose. He was hired to take yeah. the Which they the also have not explained to my satisfaction. 
So <laughs> I, I, like he did it, he danced a jig in his in his football coaching locker room, and they hired. I still think they need to explain that. But I, the idea that it's like, hey, here's a cool show about a coach who sucks. I'm like, can we? What? What are we talking about here? Why is that fun? So anyway, that's enough, Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso, the only guy. Well, I like the guy who says, "Oi." <laughs> You, you've named almost half the characters at this point. <laughs> no, I only like the grumpy characters. I don't like anybody who's nice. I, I like Many the of them jerks. are grumpy. It's an English show. <laughs> That's true. Oi! So the last thing is I have another comparison to a specific guy that I think should give some optimism potentially. And I want to make a Mac Brown comparison. Okay. okay. Because when you look at how guys won national titles in these, since 2000, Mac Brown does kind of stand out of we're talking a lot about like instantaneous flips and Mac Brown at Texas is not an instantaneous flip. Mac Brown at Texas is I was a good coach at North Carolina and learned how to do it. And then I went to Texas and then I was good there, but he won his national title at age 54 in year eight at Texas, but they'd been good. And I don't, this is not, can you hold? Yeah, see, you you act like, here's the thing. You act like you're, oh, I love relentlessly positive shows because I'm Shahan. <laughs> I'm relentlessly positive. And I said the word Texas, and you leaned into the microphone, and you were like, let me let well, it rip. No, no, actually, actually, I'm giving you that look because I, I think I might know who you're talking about. Oh, okay. Who is it? Is it Jim Harbaugh? So it's two guys okay. that I think they both fit. One is Jim Harbaugh and one is James Franklin. Okay. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. So when you look at they've both been good, they haven't gotten over the top. James Franklin, I think, is even a little more right on. James Franklin's going to be 52 this year. I think it's possible. We're holding off a little bit. What Vince Young did, this a, again, let's compare someone to the greatest, one of the greatest college football players <laughs> ever. But like, what, what did, what did Mac Brown get? He got a game program, a program changing singular talent and Vince Young. Can Drew Aller be that for Penn State? Maybe next year. And you don't have to even be that, but you're the best quarterback in a long time. I could see that. Harbaugh's building up a little more to it. because, But again, Harbaugh has put in a lot of work, but Harbaugh evolved. Harbaugh evolved unbelievably from climbing trees and taking his shirt off, which again, like in the moment, seemed like a crazy person and maybe in retrospect is a little more crazy like a fox because we spent a lot of time talking about Jim Harbaugh climbing trees while he was trying to get the program back in shape. And then once they started winning at the level they wanted to win at, he stopped climbing trees. And it's like, now let's talk about our team. But maybe when they weren't doing all the things they wanted to do, he was distracting people with saying stuff and climbing trees and doing whatever else. So (laughs) for kickers, by the way, for bad kickers. (laughs) So like that's, but you know, so now here we are, but I do think we don't have as many examples of that, but James Franklin at Vanderbilt, Jim Harbaugh at Stanford and San Diego before that, the 49ers, right? They put in time, then they get to a place. It's not instantaneous, but they grind it out. And when you see what Mac Brown did in his fifties, after almost a decade at his new place, he was able to reach a peak. I think we might still be in a situation where over their careers at Penn State, Michigan, James Franklin and Jim Harbaugh have been criticized and questioned to various degrees. But I think in their own way, we still may yet 
not have reached their coaching primes. Now, Jim Harbaugh made a Super Bowl. So it's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? So maybe a little more James Franklin here, but I still think the best of them at their current stop, Shahan, may be to come. I, I like this comparison a little bit more, like you said, for James Franklin probably than than Jim Harbaugh, because Jim Harbaugh one has been in his prime, I think, uh, a little bit more. You know, the one thing that I'll say and like I, I feel like just when we evaluate coaches, we kind of just have to throw away the pandemic and just be like 2020, even 2021 to some extent, like didn't happen too much. Like we just kind of have to say that's a thing that happened uh, because like Mac Brown did not have a, a downswing at any point during yeah. that build. Right. Like I think that that's important context. But, you know, I, I think that there are some very legitimate comparisons here, you know, because if you do put aside you know, and, and that's a very generous thing to do with that 2020 team. But if you do put aside 2020 Penn State, there's there's some real comparison here, right? Because James Franklin, you have him go 2016, 11 and three, 11 and two, nine and four, 11 and two. Take aside the four and five and kind of put a little bit of an asterisk on seven and six. And then you're back to 11 and two, right? So like you're talking about a team that's been around, that's competed with Michigan and Ohio State over the past couple of years. Um, the other thing, too that I think you have to feel kind of nice about is, you know what, uh, what Texas did in 2004 before they went in 2005, they went 11 and one. They won the Rose bowl with an underclassman superstar. Now, obviously in Penn state's case, those are running backs in Nick Singleton Mm. and Katron Allen. But I think that there's a lot of comparison there uh, in, in terms of just these super young guys coming in and showing out in the Rose bowl and sort of being like, this is our moment, and and we're showing the world what we are. And so I, I think there is some comparison there. Now, again, the the success, I think, in 2023 for that is more competing for the playoff than it is winning a national title with an undefeated season in 2005. But, uh, but I do think that there's absolutely a pathway there. The, the path is going to be harder 2005 Texas, I, I mean, I'm trying to think back. I don't think that they played anybody like Ohio State or Michigan, I would argue, during that run. Uh, they, they played Ohio State early, and Wait, Ohio State was really 2005 good. 2005 Texas? Yeah. They, yeah no, 2005, that was the first college football game I ever covered, was 2005 Texas look, versus Ohio State. Look at that. Yeah. yeah, so Ohio State was number four that year, so that actually is probably a good they analog. Awesome. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and obviously, I mean, up until the title game. USC was one of the greatest teams of all time. But, um, you know, so, so that's the tough part for Penn State is they have to get by – Ohio State and Michigan, which that is a murderous road. Now, Texas Tech was actually number 10 that year, too. That's kind of fun. But, uh, but you know, I, I think that that's probably the one complication of actually being, like, title good is that you have to beat both of those teams. But I'll tell you what. I mean, it feels like Penn State has been trying to plan for this moment. I think that they have the coordinators in place that they are going to reach the mountaintop with whatever that mountaintop is for Penn State. I, I think Mike Yersich has done a really good job. We saw him grow a lot as a run coordinator last year, I would argue. They have the offensive line coming back in 2023. Defensively, they've never been questioned. They've been awesome defensively, basically the entire James Franklin run and Manny Diaz is back. So there's some real comparisons here. And like you mentioned, I mean, you kind of have this comparison where James Franklin uh, and Mac Brown were kind of these really good coaches who were like, ah, oh, that's nice for a couple of years. And and one did it at North Carolina, one did it at Vanderbilt. These aren't places where you go win games. 
And then you bring it to a major program and it's nice and it's really, you know, 10 win type seasons, but you never have that breakthrough. And then suddenly you do because you just have a transcendent talent. And and maybe that talent's Katron Allen. Maybe it's Nick Singleton. Maybe it's Drew Aller. But the fact that I think you have three bites of the apple for it, I mean, that's that's pretty good. So I think in conclusion, I think we have, for me, it's there. there are three coaches of potential playoff teams that I really think are maybe about to build into the best versions of themselves. Lincoln Riley at USC, Ryan Day at Ohio State, Mike Norvell at Florida State. I think we're always on alert for the two-year flip, right? One, two, three-year flip in there. And I just think maybe rank Kalen DeBoer higher on that list than Marcus Freeman or Dan Lanning because Kalen DeBoer has that experience before he got to Washington, which I do think we have proof that it helps. And then there are some guys don't give up on some guys who maybe have been at their program for a while and been good, but maybe still have their best ahead of them. And so I, I this, a, this is a pretty good crop like this makes me feel good Shahan and then by the way Kirby Smart is about to do his thing but I and Nick Saban is never going to stop doing it so I I do it I think there's some good coaches like I'm 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 getting myself fired up for this season because I think you can see some pairings with some programs and situations where there's real should be like real belief in the coach real belief in the quarterback real belief in the structure, the way things have been built up to a certain point. And again, it's, I think it's going to give her a, a, give us all a wider depth of talent and possibilities across the sport, which is all that anybody wants. And that by the time in 2024, we get to the 12-team playoff, we've had such a discussion during the playoff era of, man, I don't even know if there's four teams worth putting in. And then you have semifinal blowouts and everybody's mad. I just think the sport's in a healthy spot where we're going to have a 12-team playoff and we're going to have 12 teams that deserve to be there because I think you can see some healthy, smart programs doing things in different but successful ways. So I think we'll have a good playoff in 2023, but but I want to see Kalen DeBoer in the playoff. I want to see Mike Norvell in the playoff. I want to see Lincoln Riley at USC and James Franklin at Penn State and Brian Kelly at LSU and all these. I want Brent Venables at Oklahoma. You know, I, I want to see all these different guys get a shot on the biggest stage because I think there's a lot of them that are going to earn it. Yeah, uh, you thought you could just sneak Brent Venables in there like that. Uh, but I, I think that <laughs> I think that. Um, I really like the creativity with which I feel like we've seen coaching hires made. I, I think that we are seeing more of a a wide look at candidates. Right? It, it used to be like you get the team that made the, you know, and, and Mike Norvell was this, but, you know, you get the team that's from the group of five that made the BCS game or you pick the national championship coordinator and it just got very stale, right? We had all these bad Saban assistants for such a long time all around college football, especially in the SEC. And I think that, uh, you know, even you, you look at the example of that. I mean, it's Dan Lanning out at Oregon. It's not him going and Kentucky trying to win with 
Kirby Smart's assistant, right? So like, it, I, I think that we're getting more creative, even even if you want to look at Baylor with Dave Aranda, right? Like that's a championship coordinator, but it's not like he went to Texas A&M and plays against LSU every week. I think that we're seeing a more national approach. I think we're seeing a more creative approach. I mean, even in the cases where we elevate somebody, we see Lincoln Riley coming from East Carolina to Oklahoma. We see Ryan Day coming from the NFL with a background at Temple coming to Ohio State. So I, I think that, we're just getting more creative in how we're identifying and developing coaches than we maybe ever have before. And it's paying off. You know, the, is Kalen DeBoer somebody who eventually becomes the head coach at Washington 20, 30 years ago? I, I don't know. And and you look back, you know, obviously his success at Fresno State mattered, but I would argue that they also assuredly looked at his success in the NAIA ranks, right? Like, I think that, I think that we're getting more creative. Uh, I mean, obviously I'm, you know, my background's in the big 12. You look at uh, the state of Kansas right now with Chris Kleiman, the reigning big 12 champion who comes from North Dakota state and and the team that challenged them a lot, uh, Lance Leipold coming from division three up to Buffalo. I, I just think that we're getting a lot smarter about how we're evaluating and developing coaches than we ever have before. We're not just looking for, the next random guy off the, you know, the Saban tree or the next random guy off the trestle tree or whatever else. Right. I think that we are being more creative. And also, also I will mention too, I think that the Sabans and the Ohio States and all these programs too are also being more creative about how they're getting coaches as well. So I think the sport's in a healthy place. I, I think that, uh, that we're in for some good football and, you know, one thing that I will mention, too, is three of the names that we mentioned are going to be playing in the Pac-12 this year. So this is going to be a very fun Pac-12 year. I'm I'm loath to crack this door for you because we need to go. <laughs> but you did mention it. What a year for Kansas State sports. Yeah. And, yeah. and like I was watching when I was watching uh, TCU lost in the round of 32. Right. But like they looked they yep. were a good basketball team this yep, year. Yep, yep. And you think about what they did. And I was like, man. What a year for TCU. And now you see what Jerome Tang and my yep. God, that game Kansas State just played against Michigan State. They're going to go to the final four. Who's the point guard? Noel? Uh, Marquise Noel. Yeah. Oh, that guy's like, I don't. He's unbelievable. Yeah. He's like the deuce one of the basketball team. Yeah, can, totally. Can you just drive there? Can you drive right now to Kansas State and do a, 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 a story about those two guys? What a year for Kansas State. No, so uh, I, I was mentioning this on Twitter. So obviously Jerome Tang, the head basketball coach at Kansas State now, is the longest time Scott Drew assistant. He came there in 2003. He was like... He was like a charter high school basketball coach at the time. And Scott Drew was like, I really like you. Come on over to Baylor with me. And uh, there's some great stories that have been written about that. But um, but back in 2012, this was my freshman year at Baylor. Baylor had a point guard named Pierre Jackson. He was on the Elite Eight team with Perry Jones and all of them. And then he was like the preseason Big 12 player of the year. and, And Baylor just wasn't all that good. But they went on to win the NIT. And he was also like 5A. And they just... Marquise Noel reminds me so much of Pierre Jackson. He hmm. and and I loved Pierre Jackson. He was one of my favorite players that I've ever watched in a Baylor uniform. So uh, I'll tell you what for for people who don't know, like Baylor fans are just like rooting their butts off for Jerome Tang right now because he is so beloved over there. Like you know uh, Joey McGuire over at Texas Tech, like he has a lot of love. But like Jerome Tang, he was there since the beginning. Was there for twenty years, helped win the national championship. So like he is so beloved at Baylor. And uh, no, I mean it's 
what they're doing over there is amazing. You know, the, the thing that I will say is like, Drum Tank couldn't get a job before yeah. this. Like, UTEP interviewed him last year after the, after the title and went in a different direction. So like, this wasn't, like, people kind of frame this as like, oh, well, Drum Tank just waiting for the perfect opportunity. And it's like, I mean, kind of, but like, I, like he wasn't going to take, like, Paul Mills, another assistant, took the Oral Roberts job. He wasn't going to take Oral Roberts. But, like, also, this dude wasn't getting hired places, man. And year one, he's in the Elite Eight and potentially has a chance to go further than that. Obviously, I don't know when you're, people are listening to this show. Maybe they're already in the Final Four by the time you're listening yeah. to this show. But uh, it is it is special. And now Kansas State just, like, this is the benefit of just, just like, being creative and running a good athletic department. Because if you think yeah. that you're too good to hire a longtime assistant or you're too good to hire an FCS coach, well, then you're probably going to lose a lot of games. I'm sorry. You just are, right? And so I I love I love what Kansas State does. I, you know, and, and I think that uh, there's no reason that this program and this athletic department should be any good at sports. And now they've got the Big 12 chance and a team in the Elite Eight right now. We just ran through all these college head coaches who got their first head coaching job, like in their late 30s. Jerome Tank's 56. <laughs> yeah. Took this long. Yeah. He's 56. Yeah. It's like, guess what? He's good. So You dummies probably should have hired him earlier, man. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks to you guys for joining us this week. This this pod was a little bit delayed, just like it's a busy time. So uh, we're always so happy when you guys join us on the College Football Survivor Show. Make sure you're reading Shahan at cbssports.com. I do think we'll dive back in a little more specifically to some spring football stuff. We have some ideas for next week. We know that's happening out there in the world, and we want to keep you guys updated about the best teams. But for now, thanks for listening. For Shahan Jeharaja, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.